We're continuing in the things that are in the book of Revelation, the prophecy. We're down to verse 3. Remember, this is a full, complete prophecy. It is not an epistle that can be expounded on by apostles or prophets. It's simply he states what he sees, what he hears, and he writes these down to the seven churches that we will talk about later. So in verse 3, he said, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, that heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So the things that are, basically this, what we call the church age, actually the first being what we would call born again was when the Lord after his resurrection, during the 40-day period before his bodily ascension, he appeared to the apostles several times. He appeared to many other disciples. But remember on the one occasion, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. They entered into the new covenant. We could say they were born again. They entered into that state that the Holy Spirit would dwell in them, the Spirit of Christ. So that's why he said, receive it, and it proceeded from the Christ. Everything, the Spirit comes from the Father and from the Son. The Son is part of the Godhead. When he resurrected, the Spirit of holiness resurrected his human body, and then he was restored to the standing he had with the Godhead from eternity. He is the Word of God. He emptied himself of the use or of his divinity and took on the human nature. And he wants it back. So he's finished doing the Father's will in that matter. And therefore, he is now one with the Godhead. He is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Paul uses that often. Christ in us until he resurrected and received his glory back. He could not enter a person. He did not enter them. He told the apostles, I am with you, but I shall be in you. So as Christ, the resurrected one, he is part of the divine nature. He could not have done any of these things in his body he acted as a human, yielded to the Holy Spirit. And he was confined in knowledge and other things to his humanity. Even though the devil tempted him to use the potential of his Godhead, it would have been disobedience to the Father, and he did not do it. So he perfectly obeyed. He was the perfect servant. He was a prophet and teacher of the Lord. He was filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that's where his ministry and miracles and healings come from. They did not come because he was God. They came as the Son of Man. They came as the servant of the Lord. So uh, he breathed on the twelve, and then at Pentecost, after he ascended on the 40th day back into heaven bodily, the Holy Spirit comes, and at Pentecost, the actual actions and works of the church age begin at that time. And 
that order will cease when the Lord returns. He left and ascended permanently, and he will come back the way he left, bodily. He shall come back as a king and a judge. He's still in his humanity, so he can use both. He's still the mediator. Hebrews says he's the man, the mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. So it does emphasize that he has not lost any of his humanity, but he's retained his Godhead. So he's the perfect intercessor. He's the perfect one that stands between the Almighty God and humans. And he acts in that capacity. He's now acting basically in the capacity of a mediator, a intercessor. In his bodily ministry, he was a prophet. He was a teacher sent from the Lord, and he became our sacrifice and savior by his death and resurrection. But now during this 2,000-year period, he's acting officially as the man mediator for the body of Christ and actually for the world. He still can intercede. But then he will cease this at his return. He will come as a king and a judge. Hebrews says he will not come with salvation. When he comes at that time, the world's going to be terrorized. The wicked are going to be terrorized because he's coming to judge them. He's not coming to show mercy. Time of grace is ended for that period. He will destroy the wicked and set up the millennium where he shall reign as king for a period of time. So it says, blessed or joyful is the one who reads this prophecy. He hears the words and heeds what is in it. For the end time is upon us, is what he's talking about. This age is going to complete God's work on earth. Scripture says God will make a short work. Well, what seven or 8,000 years considering the eternity of God? So many professing Christians read and study and memorize Scripture. That's good for anybody, yet of no spiritual value. They do not do, they do not practice, they do not work or obey what is spoken. That's why we have so much false Christianity out there. That's why we have so much heresy, banking everything on a verbal confession and belief and a one-time faith and faith alone. And these are all nonsense. They do not meet with the standard of the whole of Scripture. A few Scriptures are taken out of context to nullify the whole of Scripture. That's called heresy. And the Lord will consign the hundreds and more millions into hell when they say, Lord, Lord. They recognize who he is. They believe who he is mentally. But see, they did not submit to obey him. They are not led of the Spirit. They do not follow him. And he made an interesting remark at judgment during those people. He said, you did not do the will of my Father. See, he didn't say, you didn't believe in me. They did believe in him. See, wrong kind of belief. It was a belief, a passive faith, a passive belief had no action to it. So it was invalid. It was vain, as James would say. It was empty. It was dead. Without obedience, fruitfulness, see. So he said, you did not do 
The word do there often is it can be used, you did not work the will of God. You did not obey the will of God. And as we've said many times, all the judgments of God are according to works. They're not according to belief. See, because works prove what you believe. Works prove whether you have the goods or not. And that's what he was interested in. And they failed at that. And yet they claimed to do many ministries for him. But he said, but you are workers of lawlessness. What does that mean? It means you did not obey the law of Christ. You did not do the will and commands of the Father. He said, you are cursed of him. And they will be cast in, ultimately, the lake of fire. Okay, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 26. Now, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It means it will not stand. Any structure that's built on sand, the sand is movable and is not firm. So it cannot stand. So he's saying, if you hear him and his words, you're not really blessed until you do it. See, he has to, he wants them to carry through with it or he questions them. James, the apostle, half brother of Jesus, bishop or overseer of the Jerusalem church, recognized as being a, a chief administrator. Chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Anyone who professes to be born again, anyone who professes to be a Christian and does not obey and practice the new covenant and apostolic teaching, which proceeds from Jesus, is a deceiver. And they've deceived themselves. It means they've got false Christianity. It means they're not really Christians. So he makes it very plain. Verse 25, but he looks into the perfect law of liberty, which is the gospel of grace, and continues in it. Notice the condition. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Notice he calls it a work. This one will be blessed in what he does. The other shall not be blessed. Hearers only are not blessed. They will ultimately be judged more severely because they did hear the truth, but they did not obey it. One more section of scripture before we move on. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, 28. And he said to them, this is Jesus, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. See, there's no blessing in just hearing it. There's accountability and judgment to those who hear and do not obey. So we use the word obey, work, do, bear fruit. They're all interchangeable here. They're the only proofs of true Christians. So that nullifies 99% of those in the world who call themselves Christians. Seven times. In the prophecy, the book of Revelation, a blessing is pronounced to those who read, heed, or obey its instructions. That's through the whole prophecy. So he's telling us what he expects from those who are going to heed, who want to be joyful in the Lord and obedient 
They have to practice what they hear. Now in verse 4, Now John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from he who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So the prophecy we receive is directed to seven churches in what is now western Turkey. God's grace, his favor and strength, and peace he sends to you is what they're being told. It's from the Almighty God, okay? The one who has been, speaks of the past, the one who is now, the I am, and the one that shall be. It is not that he exists in the past and the future, as some fools teach. There is no action in the past or future, because neither exists. God exists in the eternal now. What he sees of the past, what he sees of the future, is something he contains within himself. But he does not live there. We have no scripture that ever proved that. There are no multi-universes and dimensions and that God deals in each one that's already happened. That's a part of perversions of predestination and foreknowledge of God that even the scripture never even hints to that God lives in those states. Okay, So he's concerned. We're concerned with the eternal present. And that's how God deals with us. So even God's foreknowledge of knowing the future and everything does not alter man's responsibility or the will of man. People think, oh, they get into these vain arguments. You know, if God sees the future, everything's fixed. On the other hand, can't they see that God sees the actions that man do? And that man himself has fixed his state. But see, God, as far as we understand, doesn't deal in that concept. What he knows, and if we read of all of Scripture, even if he knows everything, it does not interfere with his present dealings with people, does not influence him. We don't even know if he can ponder that or chooses to ponder that. See, people come up with these conceptions that they assume, and they have no Scripture to prove these things, okay? So they make God too complicated. And again, if the scripture doesn't speak on certain things, we shouldn't speak. When people try to get into all these philosophies and hypothetical things, it's nonsense. Apostle Paul considered it foolishness. That's why he said, I'm determined after dealing with the philosophers, he said, I'm determined to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was saying the whole message of salvation, not the salvation message alone, but all of Christianity. He said, that's what I'm determined. I'm not interested in all these philosophies of the universe. They don't have no bearing on man's destiny and man's actions before God. These are many things that man may never understand, may be too far beyond his comprehension, even when we're in heaven. What we see here, too, now is the seven spirits. Many think the seven spirits, and they go to the Apocrypha. These are 11 or 13 books written after Molokai and before the apostles, I think some within 100 years or 200. The Catholics accept these books. The Jews and Protestants never did. 
because they are contradictions among them too blatant. But in these books, sometimes they mention seven archangels. The scripture only mentions one. Not to say there aren't. And others in these books may have had information, but we are not required to accept it as scripture or believe it. A lot of Jewish tradition was accepted, but we have no full proof of it because much of it was oral tradition. And if it's not included, in apostolic teaching, that it's irrelevant and we cannot build anything on it. We can assume and say, oh, that's interesting. But they believe, some believe that these are the seven spirits before his throne. But the concept here and the structure is speaking of the Holy Spirit and his perfection. And I believe in general, we can basically refute that they are the seven archangels. And I'll get into that in a minute. So we are seeing they believe that these archangels, Michael, Raphael, Ural, again, these came from the Apocrypha books. They were high up angels, similar to the seraphim and the cherubim. They weren't ordinary angelic beings. They were of a superior standing, as Lucifer, Satan was. He was the covering cherub. He was most likely the highest creation of God at one time. Okay, and so uh, then he was uh, cast out and stripped of his power and his standing with God. So it's most uh, correctly the seven perfections of the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace, he says, from God. Now notice he doesn't, we can say and refute one alone. Grace and peace does not come from any person outside of the Godhead. So grace and peace could not have proceeded from archangels. That alone would refute this scripture. We have to understand it does not proceed from angels. It does not proceed from dead saints or the mother Mary. This is all nonsense. Only grace can come through the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2 There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, from David's house. Jesse was the father of David. And a branch shall grow out of it. He shall descend from its roots. Who? Jesus the Christ. And the spirit of Jehovah shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. These are the perfections most likely that this verse is referring to. So grace and peace cannot come from any other creation, person that's created. It can only come from the Godhead. And verse 5, a continuation, and the grace, who else does it come from? It comes from Jesus Christ, because he's part of the Godhead. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Jesus Christ, this grace, as we repeat, does not come from lesser beings. It does not come from angels archangels. So Jesus, the word of God, he is very God of God. 
as John tells in his gospel, he is face to face with God. See, he tells us who he is. He was from eternity. And he says, and the word, referring to him as the word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. So he tells us there what revelation. John's not writing this 25, 30 years after Paul and Peter are dead. And most of the other apostles had died, at least in the A.D. 70s. He lived for this reason and the wisdom and gifts he showed us that God waited in his wisdom. So he was faithful, Jesus was, to all of the Father's plans regarding man's redemption and God's will for man. He is the firstborn from the dead. Romans chapter 1, we'll read verse 3 and 4. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, well, we just read this in Isaiah, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. It was the bodily resurrection of his humanity that proved he was the perfect sacrifice and accepted of God, and his body saw no corruption, because there was no sin involved, he was judged for the sin of others, the Holy Spirit resurrected him, the spirit of holiness. And that's the proof he was the Son of God. See, that's what he's telling the believer. Okay, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's talking about the true church, the body of Christ who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So everything we receive, it's because of something that Jesus did for us. Therefore, we are called joint heirs with him. Whenever Jesus inherited all of the blessings of his obeying God as a man, Everything he obtained, we share with him. We are called his brethren. We are the part of his body. He is the head, the chief ruler and authority in the body of Christ. And yet we share because of who he is. Whatever he receives from the Father, ultimately we receive because of what he's done. So he received or was raised to life by the spirit of holiness And so we shall be raised as Jesus was raised. The mortal shall put on immortality. We shall enter in, as the Apostle John tells us, we are now the children or the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. So he's saying, on the earth we have eternal life as we stay with the Lord, but we have not put on immortality. So when we do this, We're going to have a relationship with the Lord. The best way to describe it is somewhere between God himself and higher than the sons of God. So we're going to have a unique position. So he's saying it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We'll be equal to angels. I believe many, not many, but some Christians will be superior than angels. Those who sit on the right and left hand of Christ shall have high position. So this is one of the blessings we are told, okay? 
He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He does not interfere often in the actions of wicked men and wicked nations. He overrides them when it suits his purpose. But their master is the god of this world, the devil. And most leaders of the world are under his influence, whether they know it or not. But their princes and various demons of certain power over nations, over religions, over political. But he overrides them. God does when it suits his plans or he wishes to restrain evil. He sets the limits. But when he returns, he will rule as a king of the whole earth and all the kings shall obey him. And toward the end, if some choose to be tempted away by the devil, well, their end will not be very pleasant. There will be no open rebellion during the thousand-year period because he shall rule with a rod of iron, says those shall rule with him. That means he will crush them immediately. God will not tolerate in Christ Jesus when he's bodily ruled as king. There'll be no open rebellion. There will be wickedness as the end of the thousand years comes, and the devil is let loose again, he'll draw the wickedness out of people. See, we're in the reverse state now. The only place the kingdom of God is on earth is in Christians. That's the place he's acting. We're the holy nation, the royal priesthood. No righteousness really exists outside of the body of Christ because we're the temple. And in the millennium, no wickedness shall be publicly tolerated. It will stay in the heart of the wicked until the Lord sends and releases the devil out of the bottomless pit to draw it out of him. That's in God's intention. If people will not obey him, the perfect human conditions under the perfect working of nature. See, God is showing that man can be wicked even apart from direct demonic influence. And so because he does this, he allows the devil to draw it out of them and form an open rebellion so the Lord will destroy them all and make a final end of sin and wickedness on the earth. Okay, So Jesus, it said, who loves us as the Father does and delivers us from sin and its power by the shedding of his blood. See, he released us. He forgives our sins. He remits them. Justification, like someone said, just as if we'd never sinned. He removes the legal power against us of what we term original sin. We are born with sinful influence. But people forget, even though we are born with that, God deals accordingly, as I've said many times. Even Paul said, God does not impute sin where there is no law. So babies and retarded people and such, they cannot be brought into open judgment. And God made that provision through Christ. He's done many things that he doesn't elaborate on. But he said, where there is no law, sin cannot be imputed. Doesn't mean the sin is not there. Remember in the Old Covenant, Before Jesus, there were righteous Gentiles. And Apostle Paul said God winked at their ignorance. But when he brought the gospel forth of Jesus Christ, uh, once it's presented, he's not winking anymore. See, he, he holds them to a higher standard. But he set a standard and judged man according to his conscience, 
or what he saw in nature, uh, how he responded at the level he had. Remember, most of the world, even from Noah's time, had a concept of the Almighty God. And they perverted this as they kept yielding to sin and the devil's influence. So we see then that God has freed the Christian from the power of original sin, its influence in us. See, we're given the power to overcome it. We're not told we have to accept it. Apostle Paul said, if you're under grace, uh, he says, you are not under the power. See, many false teachers say we are in grace and therefore we're not under its power, but they are because they're practicing evil. They're not obeying righteousness as the Apostle Paul called grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you, over the Christian who's following the Lord. Not over the person who confesses Jesus and had some experience, which he didn't keep. See, many lose their salvation. You hear pastors talk about that because most of them are false. Paul talked about it to the Galatians. He said, I'll pray. He said, you've been bewitched. You've been deceived. You began in the spirit and grace, and now you think you're going to be justified by the law of Judaism and Moses. That's what he was refuting. And he says, I will pray. Notice he said this, that Christ will be formed in you again. That means some of them were born again and real Christians, and they were led astray by the Judaizers and such, and they lost their salvation. And he's saying, I will pray that Christ will be formed in you again. In Corinthians, and he mentions twice or in his epistles he does those who are not obeying the Lord probably says perhaps you've been disqualified disqualified from Christianity is what he's talking about because you've ceased to follow him that is the branch that bore fruit and then ceases to bear fruit the father casts it aside and later it will be burned speaking symbolically of ultimately the end of the wicked to be burned in the lake of fire. But they knew him. The five foolish virgins, he never said to them, I don't know you, as he does to the masses of Christianity. He said, I don't know you. He did know them at one time. They became lazy and unspiritual and stopped being led of the Spirit, and they slept, which means they did not fulfill their duties to the Lord, and they ceased walking in the Spirit, and they tried to get right when it was too late to get right. See, at Noah's time, I'm sure there were some who climbed up the mountains and, and wanted to get in the ark. But the scripture says God shut the door. See, he sealed Noah and his family in by grace and his grace shut the door and he cut grace off from those outside. Didn't matter what they believed or what they said, it's too late. When people are judged and enter hell, there are no second chances. See, grace has its limits, and God's long-suffering and patience has its limits. So we're seeing then that he loved us, he saved us. He not only saves us from our past sins, that's the justification and redemption. Hebrews says he purifies by his blood our conscience. And Hebrews says that we can serve him in newness. See, he's done something. But it doesn't say it's automatic. And it doesn't say it works without us. 
See, these are the lies of heretics. They think they've got this seal, and it can't be unsealed. So Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. These are demonic teachings, have no basis in Scripture. Jesus said, why call me Lord? Lord, if you do not do what I tell you. See, and the majority of Christendom will be damned and sent to hell, and yet they'll mentally believe Jesus is the Son of God. It will not save them because they will not obey him. They will not be led of his spirit. See, that's going to be the proof. That's the works. That's the obedience. That's the fruit. For without it, faith is dead, useless, and is not real. That's basically what the whole of Scripture teaches us. And he continues on, and again in verse 6, And he made us, or has made us, notice the past tense, to be a kingdom, kingdom of priests to his God, the Father. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He has made through his efforts, through his merits, through his obedience to the will of the Father, he has placed us and made us, the true Christian, a kingdom of priests. All Christians are priests before the Lord. All Christians, if they understand their position, have the standing of a high priest. See, that's why Jesus said the least in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' kingdom is greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest of the prophets. It means we have greater standing and potential than anyone under the old covenant. Because no one under the old covenant was born again into the covenant and did not have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ indwelling them. We do. So that's why our potential, and therefore the true Christian has greater responsibility and stewardship. And if the Christian backslides the great judgment, he'll be judged more severely than Sodom and Gomorrah or any wicked people under the old covenant. See? Much is given, much is required. That's God's right. He said, how much? The Hebrew writer says, how much greater punishment shall you think they shall receive? He meant greater than those in the old covenant, greater than the children of Israel who kept rebelling against God. How much greater punishment? Seeing that they trample the blood of Christ again anew, and they insult the spirit of grace. So that's a dangerous place. You insult the spirit of grace, you cannot be saved. He's the one who gives grace. And even a backslider cannot come back to the Lord without the Lord's help. See? No man comes to God unless the spirit of the Father and draw helps him. Now, if he does certain condition, God will offer that. He's told us. He's given us the condition. But those who had fallen away, even Paul uses a term which is a little spooky, if you understand it. He said, perhaps God will give them the gift of repentance. He's implying there's a chance he might not. That there are some individuals that God may revert to his sovereign nature and decide, no, I'm not going to do it. He will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, and he will harden whom he will harden. So there are some who rebelled against him and lost their salvation, and God's intention is not to draw them back. Now, these are the ones who have gone deep with the Lord and then turned away 
He'll make an example of them as he did King Saul, as he did some of the prophets. He extended grace to them, and when they failed at it, he put severe punishments on them. So he has made us a kingdom of priests. We go beyond the veil. The high priest couldn't even do this. He could go past the first into the sanctuary. He could not go into the Holy of Holies. The Christian can. That's why the Hebrews writer says we can come. Some translators say boldly. That is not the word because that speaks of arrogance. He says we can come with full assurance behind the veil. See, because Christ is in us and we are in him, we have the right to come before the presence of the Father. And he dwells by his spirit in our spirit. See, so we see that this is God's intention and why the Christian has such greater responsibilities and greater privileges if he uses them than those had under the old covenants. Let's take a break here.